Let me set this up. Uh, I suppose there is a few ways we could actually address the last preaching Sunday of our calendar year. We could look back to 2018 and kind of maybe make each other feel bad. How was it and how'd you do and all that kind of assessing of, of last year. But, but I want to be more proactive about next year. So I, I'm going to try to give us something to walk away with today that can help us launch into 2019 maybe with a little bit more accountability to, to what and how we respond to what uh, the world will bring us. So if I were to ask you, what's the emotional state of our world? What would you say? Yeah, I mean, yeah, so someone said chaos, and I, I suppose that's true. So let me boil this thing down, <clears throat> all right? I understand it's too simplistic uh, to synthesize all that we see in our world or even our own hearts to try to boil it down to one point to make. But I think if we were to create a list in the top three, we'd end up with one of them being stress and anxiety, you know? And it's more, more our emotional response to the chaos or whatever is going around in our world and in, in our own life. So I didn't even know... Uh, there was such a thing as this, but I found a, a, an actual website that is American Institute of Stress. There are people who actually work on stress all the time. Um, and, and of course, they have their list of what stresses us in our culture, in our world, and you could do this on your own. It's the future of our nation. It's money, work, politics, crime, jobs, blah, 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 rinse and repeats, all the same stuff. I, I did find it interesting, though, that they did segment the... the, the um, generations to try to give an idea of what's the number one stressor of different groupings of people and millennials. And, and by the way, take, take note of this because I'm going to tell you what you're going to stress about in the future. Millennials use stress, number one, relationships, okay? The boomers, my generation, it's money. And for the silent generation, that's ages 73 to 90, it's about health, okay? So early on, you're absolutely convinced you're going to be alone, so you stress about people. Next, you're absolutely convinced you don't have enough, so you worry about money, and then you just want to make it. You want to survive it, so you're hoping you're healthy enough. But, so just so you know, all those versions of stress are coming in your life. In, in this, uh, on this website, I saw that 77% of people show physical symptoms of stress. I'm, I'm surprised it's not higher, but that's still pretty high. My wife works in nutrition, and every time someone's sick, she says it's probably stress-related. I mean, I don't know if that's true, and I'm not making fun of her, but I'm certain there is a lot of physical uh, problems due to the issue of stress and how we manage those things. And, and not to make it more bleak, but the problem's not going to go away. Again, and I read this, that the, this millennial generation is kind of leading the next phase and wave of, of our culture um, is described as the most stressed generation of all time. So obviously we're not doing anything better. We're not getting better. We're increasing the problems possibly. And if that's true, then, then maybe it would be a good thing to start this year with a reminder, a very simple yet profound reminder that God is our refuge and God is our strength. You want a banner for your stress? <laughs> he is your refuge and he is your strength. Today I want to spend some time looking at a psalm, Psalm 46. So if you have your Bible... Go ahead and turn there. Psalm 46. 
So if it's true that uh, sometimes life seems out of control and sometimes we feel a little bit helpless and hopeless, then, then the writers of this particular psalm will remind us that God is sovereign and God is in control, that he's all-powerful, that he can help, and that what's even better, he will help. That's the big theme over Psalm 46 is that God is for us. I will not try to dissect this chapter. I simply want to give us a lens, a better lens, to see our stresses through, to see the world that we're in and the problems that we deal with. Now, let me just make a little bit of a a declaration before we get into this. I'm going to do an intro, and it's going to be really long, okay? And I want you to humor me because I think it matters. I think it sets up this psalm in a really profound way, but nevertheless, I'm going to do it. I want you to notice the very beginning of chapter 46. If your Bible offers headings, there's a heading to this that reads, to the choir master of the sons of Korah. Do you see it? We don't ever read that stuff. We jump right over that stuff to try to get to verse one that says God is a refuge and strength. That's the meat of the passage. I understand that. But I think there's some profound, interesting bits of information in just looking at the lineage of the sons of Korah to find out why, why would he write this? Why would this come from? So let me take just a, a brief little bit to, to warm us up to the story. The story begins with the people of Israel, like most of these narratives about what God is doing. Numbers chapter one, uh, Israel and you're familiar with this, were enslaved in Egypt 400 years. God rescues them, sends a leader like Moses, and off they go. They're off in the wilderness on the way to the promised land to get and receive their heritage from from God. And in the first year of this journey, um, God speaks to Moses about responsibilities he wants for himself and for the people. He's laying out how this thing's going to work. Specifically, he says in chapter 3, Uh, that God has set aside Aaron and his descendants to be priests, to represent God's people to God and God to them, right? So their job was to just be that mediator. He also, in chapter 3, calls another guy and his descendants, a guy named Levi, to be a a helper for Aaron, uh, to be a guy that would do what needed to be done to serve the tabernacle. And you might already know what that is, but let me just tell you just a picture of it. This is not a complete or a perfect picture, but it will help at least put it in some context. The tabernacle was kind of like a portable church, a temple. It it was a moving, quick setup kind of a a thing where it, it spoke of God for his people, that the holiness of God was serious and take it serious, that God's people had a need to be covered and that God was always with them. That, that kind of story went around every, everywhere they went. And so Levi had the responsibility of that uh, tabernacle and the, the, the jobs for that tabernacle and its setup were commissioned to the sons of Levi, Gershon, uh, Merari, and Koath, three sons. And the way the jobs broke down was like this. Gershon had the responsibility for the tent covering and the awnings. The things that were fabric and the, I don't know, I just picture canvas tents and I'm certain it was not like that, but just in that picture. So they were responsible for those types of things. Uh, Merari took care of the frames and the crossbars and the beams and the posts, everything that created the structure that the tent and the fabric and the, and the awnings hung on. <clears throat> Kohath uh, took care of the sanctuary, excuse me, <clears throat> all the furniture, all those things. Now, When Moses was receiving from God all the instructions about the tabernacle, when that whole thing was wrapped up, the text tells us that the leaders of Israel, the tribes of Israel, came and offered gifts to Moses. And they were very pragmatic gifts, carts and oxen. 
And God said to, to Moses, it's cool, go ahead and, he didn't say it's cool, but something like that. It's okay, L let the boys, let Levi's sons use the oxen and cart to help you move this ginormous tabernacle around in the wilderness. And so uh, Gershon and Merari could, could use the carts and animals, but God was very specific about Kohath that he couldn't have any help. Him and his kids had to carry everything by hand. It was the holy things, the untouchable things. There was coverings and an appropriate way to, to move it and God had very specific commandments about how to tear it down and set it up and move all these things. Now, that is the backstory. Fast forward and Kohath has a grandson named Korah that we see here is written about um, as the choir master of the sons of Korah. Now, Korah had some friends and family, too, that decided that the job of carrying by hand all these uh, instruments and furniture for the temple was just, we're done with that. This is, this is getting old. And probably more kind of important than that, I think he looked over at Aaron and the job of being a priest and said, that looks like a better job. I'd rather have that position. So whatever caused this ruckus, it, it came up anyway. Kohath and 250 of his supporters stood up to, to kind of present a coup to Moses that we want to do what Aaron's doing. And that's what chapter 16 tells us about. And, and what's interesting in, in this particular story is that Moses calls all these men together before God and he says, you, you really want to be priests? Are you sure? Then get a censer like priests do and fill it with fire like priests do and stand before God on your own like priests do and let God decide between you or Aaron. Let's, let's do it that way. And so God then says to Moses, um, he warns him, tell all the people to get away from them and get away from where they live. Just move aside. Now, when, when you hear something like that, bad things are coming, okay? And then Moses laid down a challenge to the people. He says, now this is how you're going to know that the Lord sent me and why my words should matter to you. You're going to know that you should obey and this is how it's, it's going to look. If these men who are now standing in opposition to me and God's word and want that job, if these people die the way all men die, if, if they simply die of natural causes, if they die from explainable reasons, if they just simply pass away in old age, then you'll know I got nothing to say. But if for some reason they should, I don't know, get swallowed up by the earth, then maybe you know that I was speaking for God and you should take me serious. And the text says as soon as he's done saying it, the moment after those words leave his lips, the earth opens up and 250 men and all their possessions go into the earth and it closes up around them. Now, did God do something? I think so. I kind of picture this scene in the Raiders of the Lost Ark. It's like that kind of Hollywood kind of scene, which I suppose is a sermon for another day, but for the life of me, I can't understand why anybody would want to resist what God actually said, but I digress. Now, you might think that's the end of Korah. It certainly sounds like the end of me, swallowed by the earth. Rest in peace, right? Well, here's what the text tells us. Some of the sons of Korah survived. And they show up here seven generations after, mentioned as the songwriters of Psalm 46. It's fascinating to me 
Here's what we know about David. King David, a man after God's own heart, I think he is the preeminent example of a worshiper of God. He was the first, in my opinion, to ever orchestrate an actual organized worship team. He was responsible in that day for the temple to kind of uh, get the orchestra set up and the singers and the songs. In fact, most of the psalms are songs that he has written. And in this task, he calls the sons of Korah to be songwriters and musicians in the temple of God, okay? So here's fascinating parts of this. Most of the songs that they wrote, you're familiar with. These are the greatest hits, the top 10, okay? And it sounds kind of like this, Psalm 42. As the deer pants for the water, so my soul pants after you, O Lord. Sons of Korah, thank you very much. Chapter 84, how lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for you. you. Familiar with those? Of course you are. And they wrote Psalm 46. And, and we're going to read this, and, and I want you to just get the big bucket idea, because that's all we're going to be talking about today. You, you notice that there's three kind of layout paragraphs in this chapter. Pretty clear here as it's uh, defined for us. The theme over the whole thing, and you might even have a heading over your particular chapter that says God is our fortress, God is our refuge. That's where we're going here. He is our refuge. And in this, in this outline that the writers or these songwriters have put out for us, verses one through three, God is our refuge against raging nature. In chapter uh, 46, verse four through seven, he is our refuge against raging nations. And verses eight through 11, he's our refuge against raging hearts, okay? Let's read this and then we'll get into it. I told you it was a long intro, but uh, I think it will help. Our God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage. The kingdoms totter. He utters his voice. The earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes war cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. I got to wonder if in the minds of the sons of Korah, when they're sitting down to write a worship song, that their minds didn't go back to their ancestors. Did you read verse 2? Did it stick out to you what it said in verse 2? God is our refuge. He's our strength. Even when the earth gives way. Even the mountains are moved, that's what he says. Verse six, he says, even when the earth melts. This stop, this is another side note, another sermon for another time. It makes me wonder what the lessons our kids will teach their children from our failures. Don't feel bad, we all have regrets. But it's coming. I think, that, I think the sons of Korah did have their fathers on their mind. Look back to chapter 44, verse one. Seems to imply that. Our God, we have heard with our ears. Our fathers have told us what deeds you performed in the days in the days of old. <laughs> we can't escape it. The stories we heard from our fathers are clear. And so they write, they write songs about God's strength and God's 
help in our trouble. And the song is a powerful one uh, with that in mind. That God is to be obeyed and God is to be trusted. God is our strength. He is exclusively our strength. He is the place to go for shelter. Even when the earth, listen to me, when the earth is coming apart. Now, you don't have a moment like Korah's ancestors where you have decided to stand toe with God and the earth swallows you. But you have moments when you feel like the earth has fallen on you. I don't know what the circumstances are. I don't know what the problem is. I don't even know who caused them. That does not stop the fact that sometimes you feel like this is too much. It's all coming apart. The world is coming down on us. You might say even of your own experience that it's not at all like you wanted it to be. Here's what the sons of Korah say. We will not fear. In fact, verse 10 kind of says it. Be still, therefore, and know that I am God. What do you think it means to be still? It means just to stand still, just like don't move? It's not, it's not at all what it means. It is not a position physically. It is a disposition of the heart. It is a disposition of our minds and our faith. For everyone, according to Peter, who is born into a living hope, for those of us who call ourselves Christians, like truly converted ones, those of us who have hope and a, a God who saves and a God who keeps his promise to hold on to his children that nothing can separate us from, in that promise, right, in that reality, the disposition of the heart is trust. The Hebrew form of the word has different meanings, but it, it basically means to put slack in it, to let it, let it drop. Now, it can have a negative kind of use in the sense that you could use that same word to describe a discouraged heart, a disappointed heart, someone who's disheartened, like my hopes, my dreams, my aspirations, right? What I thought I needed. You can, you can use it in a negative way to describe that disappointment. But here, here the sons of Korah use it in a word to describe put slack in your own self-help. Now, this is where it gets really practical because every one of us, like, are experts, PhDs in self-help. That's how we prefer to manage our life. In other words, we, here's what the sons of Korah say, cease your striving, striving to manage your life or fix it or sort it all out or make it all work, whatever, whatever problem you have, here's what he's saying, put slack in it. Leave room for God. Let him come, let him answer, let him rescue, let him be your refuge. If you're running to solve and running to answer and running to conclude everything, how could you possibly ever know the rescue of the Lord if all you do is be your own savior? So, I think it's what God may be saying to some of us here today. To some of us who feel like our life is so out of order and the world is so crazy, we use tension and fear worry and anxiousness to manage that. Well, if that's you, if you can say amen to that, if that's part of your life, if that's what 18 was, and you want to avoid that in, in the future, then let the sons of Korah sing. Let them tell you to drop the self-effort and watch the deliverance of God. Verse 1, if that's all you had, if this is the only theology you had, it's all you need. He is our refuge. He is our strength. He is, our, he is present in our trouble and he is with us. So let your hearts rest. Be still. But slack in it. Leave room for God. Now, maybe that helps. I think it should help. There's a theological understanding of God's deliverance for us and our, and our need to... to uh, 
leave room for God. But I want to try to be a little bit more maybe confrontational and helpful at the same time, if those can happen at the same time. Let me give you some thoughts on this. This kind of peace that we're talking about, this kind of rest, this kind of slack, this peace grows in the heart humble enough to love God's leading. And I put that together. Humble. Humility required to experience peace. Because here's the reality. We run around with our heads cut off trying to be our own peace. Perhaps this is the lesson the sons of Korah had learned from their fathers. Great, 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 great grandpa, he wanted to take matters in his own hands. He didn't like what God gave him to do. He wanted something else. He tried, and oh my gosh, did it go poorly. So, in reality, here's, here's what we know. Humility is required to trust that God knows what he's doing. In fact, David wrote in Psalm 131, my heart is not proud, O Lord. My eyes are not haughty. I do not concern myself with, with great matters or things too wonderful for me, too difficult for me, too above me, too lofty. You want an interpretation for that? Things you don't understand. And if you want to fill a list behind what you don't understand, just, just cut to the chase. Nothing. You understand nothing. You don't know what God has for you tomorrow. You don't know how long you'll be healthy or when you'll die. You don't know if your business decisions will equal profit. You don't know anything. So in this kind of God is sovereign and I'm just a person, I'm a, a, a fabric of flesh and bone that God holds together by the power of his word, what do I possibly know other than he is good and he loves me? Amen. That's all I know. And so I go about living my life worried about controlling those things because I've concluded there's a better, there's a better peace. There's a happier destination. There's a greater joy. There's a better outcome. How could I possibly know? David said, I don't even waste my time thinking about things too difficult for me and too lofty for me. And what he has in mind is almost everything, things you don't understand. And isn't it true, the older you get, the less you understand? Is that not true? You only have to be 20 to, figure, to think you know everything. You just have to get older. You know nothing. No offense to those of you who are 20. I love you too. You don't know about your future. I want you to have a good future, but I can't know your future. You don't know about your life, and you don't know about how things are going to turn out as, as great and planned out your agenda is. You have no idea. Things can be going just so smoothly. It's like you got it on file. It's like perfect, and it leaks through your hands like sand. And you're left to go, oh, I didn't see that coming. I, I would have prepared. You, you don't know what you don't know. Things too wonderful for you. David simply says, my heart's not proud. I don't go running around trying to figure out what you're doing, God, when it's all said and done. I don't know. So I live in humility. And if you're going to know the kind of peace that the sons of Korah are singing about, then you have to be humble enough to love that kind of leadership. God, I love the fact that you know. I love the fact that you've got a plan. I love the fact that you're good, and I don't have to know beforehand. I don't have to know. So I think there's a problem with pride in our hearts, and that's no mystery to you. But here's what pride does in this particular circumstance. It causes us to overvalue what we think and what we feel. Pride says what I'm thinking right now, the plans that I'm making right now, the emotions I'm feeling right now, pinnacle. That's why they're important. And isn't that the explanation for the chaos in our world? Everyone's got a feeling and a thought, and everyone's right, so war. Fight. 
Nobody knows. Nobody's willing to be humble and say, I don't know anything. Pride causes that division. So the big part of the stress is that we have to fight for what we think and feel. Pride also causes us to be restless and dissatisfied with what God provides. God is our provider. He is our sustainer. He is our strength. He is. He's promised to be that. But sometimes we look at it and go, just like the sons of Korah, don't like it. So you look at your life and go, it's not enough, God. It's simply not enough. I have right now a, 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 a journal full of needs that you seem to be not interested in. It's just not been filled up like I want it to be. So God, clearly you haven't done enough. And so what do we do? What happens to the human heart when we conclude that God isn't doing all for us and doing specifically for us, we run to fill in the blanks ourselves. But it doesn't just stop there. It's so twisted. This is what pride does to us. Even when God gives us a lot, we say, uncle, we don't like it either way. So in God's love and affection for his people, he's so committed to you that he wants to shape the very image of his son in you, and he's promised that nothing will stop it. He will use circumstances, life, health, family, relationships, everything. He'll use everything to bring about the image of Jesus. And when he starts leaning on us, church, when he starts pushing on the areas of my life that don't look at all like the Savior, we go, uncle, too much, don't need that. God, it's overkill. We, we just complain. We don't like anything he does. Too much or not enough. So, pride also causes us to put refuge in ourselves. Isn't that true? Got a crisis? Buy your way out. I put my trust in my wisdom. I make my plans. I have my opinions. I have my coping mechanisms. And nowhere in it is God. That is the human heart without a lot of help. So, peace grows in a heart humble enough to love the Lord's leading. Also, peace grows out of devotion to Jesus. You've heard this before. This is the instruction of our Lord where he says in Matthew 6, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And here's what I have to say to you today. Some of us are juggling too right now. And may, maybe you don't even know where it is, but it just is. Jesus and. Whatever it is, whatever the and is, is this two masters. You're trying to find this thing that Jesus offers, like ultimate satisfaction and peace and joy, like that's a wonderful description of the life I want. I want that. And yet I'm absolutely convinced the way to get it is nothing in he said. And so I, I, I say, give me that joy, peace, and, and relationship, and let me have whatever it is. And we live with this Jesus and situation. And I would suggest to you, if we're going to obey Matthew 6, the instructions of Jesus, then it has to be like this. If Jesus isn't your peace exclusively, then he's not your peace. And I'm not being hard on you. I got my issues too. We all do. And what's sneaky about it, no matter what you know, you get caught off guard. Like suddenly there's the and. I thought it was Jesus. Here's the end. Where did you come from? I was so ready for you. I preached a sermon about that. And there's the end. So if you want to find out the end, take this test. Ask yourself what occupies your thoughts, time, money, text, reading, and watching. Ask yourself what gets in. Be honest. Don't be afraid. Look at it all. Some men justify what I would call a view of work that isn't biblical because they've taken a version of supply for their family to this version that God didn't. 
And so they don't father and they don't husband well. And they justify it based on the, think that, the thought that they're obeying God. And there's so many other versions of that, right? You just ask the questions. What occupies it all? And you found your aunt. Jesus says you can't, you can't serve God and stuff. So, peace grows out of devotion to Jesus. Let me add this. Peace grows out of an eternal perspective. Again, in the same chapter, again, Jesus' instructions. He says, do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus seems in this passage to contrast earthly treasures from heavenly ones. And he offers an option, it appears to me. Store up here, and here's the promise. Rust, fade, stolen. Which is interesting, because nobody pursues that. We, we do everything we can to avoid all of that in our life. And then he says, or you can store up in heaven. You can, you can give your greatest treasure to the Father, and it will never be lost. Hopes, salvation, trust, dreams. You will not be, according to him, disappointed. And let me just make this, like, blunt. When you and I are worried and anxious, it's never, ever, ever about the kingdom. Is it? Is it? We're not worried about God going, you know what, never mind. I wash my hands of sinners. Jesus saying, I, I won't apply this sacrifice to your life. I will not grant faith to people who think the gospel is foolish. Never mind. I changed the plan. It's all for naught. <laughs> That's not possible. You don't sit around stressing whether God's going to not be God or not be good or not be great or not be powerful. You have no stress about the kingdom of God. You just simply stress about everything that isn't. Rust, fade, stolen. And you wonder why. He told us. He told us. So, you don't have to worry about the kingdom. Uh, there's an interesting sentence in chapter 42 of Psalm. You don't have to turn there. But the sons of Korah, again, writing a line in a song, said this. It's powerful. The Lord commands his steadfast love. You ever heard that before? The Lord commands his steadfast love. In other words, God's love for you is established by his word, not his mood. Think, think about that. So unlike love that we would know, I feel like caring for you. I feel like giving to you. I feel like being faithful to you. God is committed to his command to steadfast love you. He says, I'm going to do this. I'm going to make for myself a people. They're going to be my children, and they will receive the inheritance of the kingdom. They are mine, and nothing can separate them from me. There is no condemnation for them because my condemnation was poured out on Jesus. And so here's the reality of all of that. He follows through in his love because of a command, not a feeling. Not a feeling that comes and goes with the whims of you, which is how it works, right, in our world. I'm, I love you until you're a jerk, and then the deal's off, Right? God loves you because you're a jerk. <laughs> Don't put that on the Twitter feed, okay? No one will understand without context. 
Here's the promise. God said he's going to finish what he started. It's eternal. It's secure because he said it. He commanded it. He can't go back. He won't go back. He's God. For him to quit, he would cease to be. He commands his steadfast love. So, you want peace today? Let me give you another thought. You understand that peace is a gift of God? The Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 4 said this. You're familiar. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Jesus speaking to his disciples in John chapter 14 said it this way, peace I leave you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give it to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. God loves you, church. He is our refuge. He is our strength when the world feels like it's melting in on you. And let me just suggest to you, you're 19, (laughs) could be exponentially better if you let go the fear and the anxious thoughts that somehow you participated in how secure you were. You don't. He holds you. And whatever version of life you got coming, whether it's total health and happiness and wealth, I don't know, or whether it's sickness and death, he is good. The rest of it's too lofty for me to consider. But he's always good because he's our refuge. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. God, I thank you for this reminder and the power behind just hearing that you are for us and you are a strength and you are a refuge in a time of trouble. God, there is, there's no doubt that we need to hear that today. Even when it feels like our world is giving away and the earth is melting in on us, Father, don't ever, ever let us forget how much you're for us. And that your plan that is way too lofty for us is a good one and that we can trust you. God, let it leak into our soul and control our nerves and our fear and our stress. God, we uh, will take this command seriously. We will be still. We'll put slack in our efforts and leave room for you. God, help us do that, we pray. Amen.